Do you remember when you learned how to ride a bike? Or when you learned how to type or cook or drive or water ski? I learned how to snowboard at Devil's Head Resort in Wisconsin. And the name of the place probably should have been my first clue that I would be spending the day in you-know-where, right? I went with a very experienced snowboarder, and he took me to the Bunny Hill. Now, if you've ever been skiing or snowboarding before in Wisconsin, you know that Wisconsin doesn't have very good snow. Instead, they have ice. And so on the Bunny Hill, I'm trying to get used to this snowboard thing attached to my feet. I'm trying to understand how to balance while I'm moving. I'm, I'm being introduced to things called toe turns and heel turns, which I would very soon learn would cause a great deal of pain in my life. By lunchtime, I'm feeling relatively good. I want to venture out, do something unique, and so I decided to take on one of these green beginning routes. And I have never in my life experienced such a sense of failure as I did that afternoon. And failure in snowboarding has serious tailbone consequences. This happens because you're very, very regularly losing your balance and you fall back onto your tuchus over and over and over again. But this also happens when you're trying to do this thing called a toe turn. Uh, in my case, I'm turning to my right, and so my, I'm on my toes, which means that my body begins to go behind. I'm facing, my back, my back is facing downhill, and if you just pivot back at all on your heels, you'll catch the edge of your board and smack right onto your rear. This happens all day long. It was awful. Every once in a while, I'd get some reprieve from this by moving to a heel turn, which means this time, instead of going that way, I'm going this way, and I'm on my heels, but the same thing might happen. I might dig my toe in, and if I catch my edge, then smack face plant. This happened all day. This was a very rough experience. I don't know what you believe about the, bat the battle that goes on, spiritual warfare, but at Devil's Head Resort, I was experiencing it, and I'll never forget it. Now, chances are you remember the place, the time, where something happened, where you learned something. These things just stick in our minds. You know, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, we learned last week that they did this. They asked Jesus to do this, and I'm guessing that they didn't forget this significant experience in their lives, and I'm guessing they didn't forget where it happened. You know, Pastor Jim referred last week to a trip he took with his family this past summer to Israel, and I was on that trip because I'm in that family because I married his beautiful daughter, Rachel. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, but Jameson, well, we didn't see you in any of the pictures that Pastor Jim showed last week. <laughs> and you'd be right. In fact, I was the only family member left out of those pictures, and so you can be praying for me as I try to work through that <laughs> and as I try to figure out how I'm going to get him back. One of the places that we visited is called Paternoster, uh, which is on the Mount of Olives. It's a place just outside the city of Jerusalem. And this location is thought to be the spot referred to in Luke chapter 11 as a certain place. This is the phrase that Luke uses where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Paternoster is Latin for the first two words of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father. Uh, this particular place was extremely meaningful. There, there's a church built on this site, and in its hallways are lots and lots of copies written out on these arched hallways, as you can see here, of the Lord's Prayer in multiple languages. Jesus taught his disciples to pray here, 
And then this prayer moved all over the world to tons and tons of different languages, and people have been praying it for centuries. It's amazing. But this spot was also meaningful because as you kind of move toward the center of this church, you go down a walkway into a cave. And this is supposed to be the spot. It preserves the spot where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Now, busloads of tourists go in and out of this cave all day long, but when we were there, for whatever reason, there weren't a lot of people. It wasn't very busy, and so we had an opportunity as a family to have this cave all to ourselves. And we spent time together reciting the Lord's Prayer as we've just done in worship together. We did that together as a family, meditating on the richness of that prayer and on the richness of being in this spot on the Mount of Olives where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Now, according to the gospel accounts in our New Testament, this isn't the only place where Jesus is mentioned as teaching the Lord's Prayer, this prayer that we pray. He he says in Luke that he did this on the Mount of Olives. In Matthew, we see Jesus teaching this prayer to his disciples and a large crowd in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I'd also just say, take out your weekly welcome so you can take some notes. I want to share a couple of thoughts by way of introduction that will help us to prepare to read this passage together. Our series is called Teach Us to Pray, Lessons, Essential Lessons from Jesus. So last week, Pastor Jim taught us about disciplined prayer, and he specifically encouraged us to locate a spot and to find a time where we could spend praying. Did you do it? Did you have an opportunity to do that and then to actually follow through and spend some time praying in that spot at that time? I hope you did. And if you did, you might have realized that you didn't have maybe a whole lot to say. What am I supposed to say when I pray? What are we supposed to pray about when it comes time to pray? That's the topic for today. We've titled this Balanced Prayer because we should make it our practice to include a variety of things in our praying and to give each of them some time and attention. In other words, when we've carved out this time and we've gotten in this spot to pray, we should be comprehensive and we can be comprehensive in our praying. Now, I'm guessing that this approach might chafe against some of us. As we think about last week's topic, yes, it was disciplined prayer, but Pastor Jim fleshed it out in terms of a relationship with God and a desperation that we come to God in desperation. And a lot of us would feel like, oh, this is wonderful, it's exhilarating, and it's relational. And then we come to today, and we start talking about words like comprehensive and balanced. And it feels like it takes us out of the realm of the relational and into the realm of formula. So is it necessary to pray with balance? Is it even possible to pray with balance? Well, I'd say yes, because here's what I've learned as I have prayed in imbalanced ways in my life. You know, very similarly to when my car tires lose air pressure and they become imbalanced, which leads to bad alignment and expensive repairs. In my prayer life, if I get lopsided in my praying, for lack of a better term, it will begin to kind of stink. You know, if, I, if I'm not prioritizing thanksgiving in my praying, I might actually begin to forget that God is the one who provides for me, and I might just focus on my difficulties. If I don't ask God for anything when I spend time praying, I might begin to believe that I provide for myself or that I can do life without his intervention. If I don't confess sin at all when I pray, I I find my prayers to be ineffective, my ears to be blocked to God's voice. If, If I don't spend any time praising God, I could forget who he is, who am I talking to, and this might become just a therapeutic exercise that helps me 
But if I'm balanced in my praying, if I'm hitting on all of those things, my prayer life thrives. Because praying in a balanced way helps us to pray rightly. It helps us to pray the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Because the Lord's Prayer is, after all, a model of balanced praying. Now, that's not all it is, but it is that. And that's the angle from which we're going to be studying it today. And so I've got three questions for us to ask. And my hope is that answering them will help us to achieve balance in our praying. All right, three questions. I hope you've got Matthew 6 open in front of you. If you don't, you can follow along on the screens. I want to read the entirety of our passage. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. All right, first question. Should we use patterns or be spontaneous? Patterns or spontaneity? In high school and college speech classes all around our country this year, Students will stand up in front of their peers and their teacher, and they will take time to explain how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something like that. This is called what? The how-to speech. You remember these things, people? How-to speech. The student has to identify something that they're good at, and then they got to find a way to explain this to other people. And so they have to come up with a purpose statement. So you'll hear, the purpose of this speech is to help you learn how to use your digital camera some 55 times over the course of the semester. Then they outline the steps, they explain how to do that, and then they show you how to do it, and then they express some kind of hope by the time that you're done that you've learned how to do this thing and a hope that somehow they'll get an A on this. This is the how-to speech. Now, having no intention to cheapen what we find in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus presents a how-to speech. Jesus is an excellent prayer, and so he chooses to teach on prayer. He has a goal and a purpose in mind. The purpose of his speech is to help his disciples learn to pray. And he walks through what we should be including in our praying, and he assumes that his followers will begin to do this themselves because he's given them a pattern. Now, you can see this for yourself as you open up the text as it's sitting before you. Look at the first line in verse 9. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Now, we could rephrase that a little bit. Pray then like this, and then he launches into this very specific thing. Pray then like this. Jesus doesn't just tell us to pray and then leave us wondering what we should say. Instead, he, as a good how-to speech should, gives us exactly what we should be saying. He gives us a pattern to copy. Now, take a look at the pattern as a whole, kind of a bird's-eye view of the passage itself. You'll notice that this is a pattern that has balance. For instance, there is this address to God that gets us launched off. It opens up this prayer, and then there are these two sections that make up the bulk of the prayer. Take a look at this. The first section includes the last part of verse 9 and then all of verse 10, and it has three requests that relate to God. God gets the focus of the first half of the prayer. The second section includes verses 11, 12, and 13 and has three requests requests that relate to human needs. Do you see that? Three for God and three for human needs. It's a balanced prayer. So I think we can say that Jesus, the Son of God, gets an A on his how-to speech 
because in his how-to speech, he gives us a pattern to copy, and he also it does it in a very balanced way. So if you drip this down into an insight for us, it would be Jesus gives us a pattern to guide our praying. Jesus gives us a pattern to guide our praying. Now, I'm sure that you're with me up to this point, but some of us might have a bit of a concern as we start to think down this line because we're emphasizing patterns so much. And for a lot of us, maybe, in our past, we've had a pattern, a ritualistic, sort of lifeless pattern, maybe this one specifically, that's just been by rote and by resuscitation over and over. And you feel like, man, I'm kind of concerned that it could become that if we're just focusing so much on pattern. I say, yeah, it's a wise concern. In fact, Jesus even shares your concern. In the verses that surround the Lord's Prayer, Jesus deals with this kind of ritual-style abuse. If you broaden things out, you look at the bigger context. In the surrounding passage, Jesus is addressing the topics of giving and fasting and prayer. And all of these are activities that can be done with selfish and insincere motivations. And so when Jesus comes to the topic of praying in verses 5 through 8, he contrasts a self-centered, me-centered, mechanical, ritualistic, repetitious type of praying with a thoughtful, God-honoring, sincere kind of praying. Jesus intends for our hearts and minds to be completely involved when we're praying. And when that praying happens like that, then we commune with God. And it doesn't have the tendency to become mechanical or all about us. So Jesus agrees with your concern, but that doesn't cause him to not promote or recommend a life-giving pattern. He doesn't overreact and throw the baby out with the bathwater. Jesus recognizes the abuse. The the abuse may even happen again, but it doesn't mean that this prayer that he gives us can't be used rightly. So we're back to the same insight. Jesus does give us a pattern here right in the text. We can see it. That's supposed to be guiding our praying. All right, so with this insight rattling around in our heads, Jesus gives us a pattern to guide our praying. We can seek to answer the question that we've laid out. Should we be using patterns or should we be spontaneous? Patterns. Jesus says we should use the pattern that he gave us, and so we should use the pattern that he's given us. Okay, so let's say that it's Monday morning, and because you have been attentive in the course of this series, you've decided that you're going to spend some time praying. You've got a time, you've got a space, and then because you want to be responsible and obedient to God's word here, you pick this pattern, and you open up your Bible, and you sit down to recite the Lord's Prayer during your prayer time. I'm going to use the pattern that Jesus gave me. So you read the Lord's Prayer, and you say amen. I did this this past week. I clocked it at 25 seconds. That's how long it took. So so, some of us are feeling pretty good about that. Man, 25 seconds a day, that's my prayer life. Sweet. But there are a couple of problems with this. We learned last week that we're to to develop a relationship with God by praying, and it's not going to happen 30 seconds a day. Let's say it takes you 30. It's still not going to happen. The other problem is that you're going to realize really quickly that most of the needs that are burning in my life and in my heart didn't get represented by this. It's a nice prayer, but I didn't get to say all of this other stuff that I'm facing as I start out the week on Monday. So what gives? Well, in our zealousness to live what would Jesus do lives, we've overlooked something in our answer to the question. I've said over and over that Jesus gives us a pattern to guide our praying. 
to guide our praying. The Lord's Prayer provides the boundaries. It provides the topics. And from there, we can be spontaneous by filling in current events in the world and in our own lives. And so the answer to the question, should we use patterns or should we be spontaneous, is we should do both. We've got to pay attention to the pattern that Jesus gave us because we understand that these are the things that Jesus wants us to prioritize in prayer, but that serves as a guide that shapes our talking to God. Now, here's an analogy. Uh, my wife, Rachel, is an extremely creative person. She loves to make craft-like things, projects for her friends or for our apartment or family or whatever. And she's really, really good at it. I'm regularly amazed by the ability for her to come up with something in her head and out of nothing make this thing happen. But regularly she uses this process. She's got the project in mind and what she does is she comes up with this idea and then she goes and she finds something that's similar someplace so that she can study how that thing was made. So she might go to a store and she'll look at it and figure out how is this thing put together. She'll go on the website Etsy, see how this person's done something similar and she'll take the conglomeration of her studies, her creative insight, she puts it all together and creates something unique. A structure and an outline that allows her to be creative and innovative and, and make something creative and unique. This is what's going on when we spend time praying. We're using a pattern that Jesus gives us, hitting on this and this and this, and this sets the stage for us to include all of the spontaneous stuff in our lives. So Jesus gives us a pattern to guide our praying, and it ensures that we're going to strike the right balance. One of the ways that we can begin using a pattern in our praying is to take the Lord's Prayer and to do exactly what I've just said, to sit down with it open and to use it as our prayer guide and to allow each line to get our thinking going and then to expound on it. And we'll take each line in just a little bit and flesh out what that would look like in our praying. Another way to use the Lord's Prayer specifically as a guide would be to structure your week with it. You take, there's seven different things that you can include in seven different days. So on Sunday, our Father in Heaven is the theme to your praying. And then on Monday, hallowed be your name and so forth throughout the rest of the week. You're expounding on the basis of the things that Jesus holds forth as our priorities. Another way to include a pattern in your praying is to use something that incorporates some of the big themes of the Lord's Prayer, but it isn't exactly the Lord's Prayer. The uh, Lord's Prayer themes like requesting things of God and honoring God and confessing sin. You've no doubt heard Pastor Jim talk about this kind of thing when he's referred to CHAT, C-H-A-T. The, the acronym stands for Confess, Honor, Ask, and Thank. And this is a really helpful pattern for us because it reminds us that we're talking to God. It's a chat, but also it puts the C first. We spend time confessing sin first, which cleanses us and allows us to commune with God in honoring, asking, and thanking. If you're just starting off into a prayer life or you're revitalizing your prayer life or you're a parent and you want to include your family in some kind of devotional time, I would recommend that you use this chat thing first because I think that it's really helpful to guide our praying. If you want a larger explanation of this chat thing, by the way, you could listen to a series of messages done a bunch of years ago at Christ Community called Time for a Chat, or you could snag Pastor Jim's book, Prayer Coach. He develops this chat section as a subsection of his book. It's an entire part, so you could read that up. Use a pattern and be spontaneous. Second question, should we exp express intimacy 
or reverence? Intimacy or reverence? Now, I want to ask you to use your imagination with me. Uh, let, let's say that someone comes up to you uh, because he's seen you praying or he's heard you praying and he asks you to teach him how to pray. What would you say? Yeah, several Bible passages might come to your mind, some things that you've been taught on prayer. Those things might come to your mind. And so you begin to talk about those couple of things with this person, but you start to see that his face is sort of glazing over. He's not getting it. He's confused. And so in the course of discussion, you realize you need to be more basic. And so you just kind of boil it down and you say, hey, okay, here's the deal. When you're praying, you're talking to God. So just go and talk to God like you talk to anyone else. He finds this helpful, so he launches off and he goes and spends time praying. A month later, you guys get together for lunch because you want to check in on how this praying thing is going. And as you're sitting across the table, you ask how it's going, and he indicates that it's going really well. In fact, the thing that you said was extremely helpful. Just talk to God like you're talking to anybody else. So the food arrives at the table, and he offers to pray. And you think, oh, this is great. I get to hear him do what we've been talking about. This is really cool. And so he begins his prayer, and he launches off by praying to homeboy Jesus and then uses all sorts of other really, really normal, familiar language to talk about Jesus like he's his homeboy, his buddy. And the whole time you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable while this prayer is being prayed. And you suddenly realize that you didn't tell all the story. You say, oh, Jesus did call us friends. We should have familiarity with Jesus as friends in prayer. Absolutely, he said so, and it's true. But you'd also want to over, you'd want to you'd balance that out. You'd want to emphasize that there's also a need for reverence when we're praying because you realize that's what at, what's at stake here is a view of God. And you wouldn't want him to have a distorted picture of God. And so as he's wrapping up his prayer, you swallow deeply as you try to figure out how to correct this imbalance. Now, which is it? Should we be expressing intimacy in our praying or should we be expressing reverence in our praying? Both. You got my trick already. Good job. We should be doing both, expressing both intimacy and reverence when we pray because if we leave either one out, our praying will be imbalanced. Take a look at how Jesus was able to be both reverent and intimate in the prayer he taught his disciples. It's the next line of the Lord's Prayer, the next line in verse 9. Jesus says, Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. He starts on a note of intimacy. Our Father. The surrounding verses make clear that Jesus uses the word father several times and he means various things. In verse 6 he says that God is a father who sees what happens in secret and he rewards those whose aim is to glorify him. In verse 8, Jesus says that God as a father knows what we need before we even ask him. And then finally in verse 14, he says that God as a father forgives those who demonstrate a repentant, forgiving heart. He sees and rewards. He forgives. He knows our needs. So in prayer, we encounter a God, a loving and personal father. And we can talk to him intimately. That's great news. Then Jesus balances it out. Our Father, he recognizes that this Father is in heaven. The Bible can often refer to the fact that God dwells in heaven, but here the original word in Greek is plural, in the heavens, which means that it most likely refers to the power and authority that are at God's command as the creator and ruler of all things. He's ruling the world, and so we approach him reverently. 
Jesus holds both of them together. Our Father in heaven. God is a personal loving Father and he is the creator and ruler of all things, which means that in God we have fatherly love and we have heavenly power. So when we're praying, we need to remember who we're talking to so that we come to him with the right frame of mind. Demonstrating an appropriate humility, you're ruling the heavens and an appropriate confidence. You're my father. A year and a half ago, I received a completely out of the blue opportunity. I got a phone call from Judson University in Elgin, and they went on to describe that I was being given an award for excellence in leadership for my role in student ministry. And this was extremely surprising to me. I was obviously extremely thankful, but I was also really surprised then to learn that this gift, this award, I should say, was supposed to be coming in the form of a gift. And that gift was a VIP pass to an event being held, a World Leaders Forum being held at Judson University. And the guest of honor was going to be our former president, George W. Bush. And so I don't really care what you think about George W. Bush. If I'm going to have a chance to hear a president speak, I'm going to go hear a president speak. And so in my surprise that I'm getting this thing, I didn't really hear the other part of it, which was that the VIP pass that I was getting didn't only get me into hearing him speak, but it got me into a special gathering where I was going to get to meet him. So ah, again, I don't really care what you think of President George Bush. If I get to meet a president, I'm going to meet a president. I'm jumping all over it. And so leading up to this event, I found myself in an interesting spot. I wanted to have the right state of mind about this. On the one hand, I recognize that he's a human being like you and like me. And so I just want to treat him like that. But on the other hand, he's one of only 44 people who have sat in that seat. And that's pretty stinking unique. And so leading up to this event, day of, I'm fixated on this problem, trying to figure out what am I going to say to this person when I get near him. On the one hand, again, I'm thinking, he put his pants on like you this morning, Jameson. And on the other hand, I'm thinking, but he's been the president of the United States. I'm going to shake his hand. So I get there, and I did get to meet him, and I smiled, and I shook his hand, and I thanked him for his leadership, and we took a picture together, and then I was on my way. No sweat, right? No sweat. You can see my point coming from a mile away. If, if I give this much attention to a mere mortal who does deserve respect and honor, how much more so should we give this much attention to approaching the God who is our Father in heaven with the right frame of mind? I'm not saying that Jesus is giving us protocol for approaching God. I'm not saying that you've got to clean yourself up before you can go into your Father. No, that's not what I'm suggesting. What I am suggesting is that because God is our Father in heaven, both of them, because it's true of him, that we should acknowledge it by being both intimate and reverent. Now, when we approach God in prayer, we need to remember who we're talking to so that we come to him with the right frame of mind, demonstrating appropriate humility, you're ruling the heavens, and appropriate confidence, you're my father. So I think it's a good idea that before you spend time praying, you just pause for 15 seconds to remind yourself of that reality. Who am I going to talk to right now? You could also, in your prayer, at the beginning of your prayer, or after you've confessed your sin in the context of chat, you could spend time honoring God for the attributes I've just mentioned. He's personal. He's loving as my Father. He's creator and ruling as the one who's in the heavens. Now, one more quick thought on this point. For many of us here today, talking about God as Father is a really comforting and wonderful truth. 
Uh, but for some of us here, the, the talking about God like this as our father is a little bit odd because he's not your father. And so you feel like that's very strange to address him that way. The Apostle John in the New Testament says this, specifically referring to Jesus, to all who received him, Jesus, to those who believe in his name, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You can say our Father by believing in Jesus and receiving him. So if that's you, I'd encourage you to talk with someone who brought you or to talk with someone in one of our welcome centers at all of our campuses about starting a relationship. What is a relationship with this God that you're talking about who is Father? All right, so in praying, we're trying to balance our reverence and intimacy. We're trying to balance patterns and spontaneity. Here's our third and final question. Should we focus on big stuff or small stuff? Big stuff in our praying or small stuff in our praying? I was at Starbucks a couple of weeks ago, and I overheard a conversation of a group of people relatively nearby me. They were talking relatively loudly. And they were talking specifically about their experience in what we call community groups here at our church. And they were talking about one particular part of that. They were not happy with their experience. It was very clear to me. But they were talking specifically about the time in our community groups when it goes to praying, when you start sharing prayer requests. And they could not believe, they were laughing out loud at the thought that people actually think God cares about the small things that come up in these prayer times. Like, I need to find a parking spot for my meeting when I'm getting there late, or Aunt Shirley's broken angle, or getting a good grade on an exam. And as I'm overhearing these things, I'm thinking to myself, but God does care about those things. Things. I believe that. So much so that the other day, Rachel and I get to the checkout line in Jewel, and we realize that somewhere along the way, since we've enter entered the store, we've lost a coupon for $9 off our purchase. And I want to save that money. That's a lot of money. And so I start praying, believing full well that God answers those prayers. He cares about those things because He wants us to spend our money wisely. Is that a silly, small thing that these people at Starbucks would say, oh, yes, of course it is, but it's not according to God? So, so which is it? Should we be praying about small stuff or should we be praying about big stuff? Both. We should be praying about both, big stuff and small stuff. Take a look again at the passage one more time. I want to read the whole prayer again so we can keep its big context in our minds. Verses 9 through 13, Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now earlier when we looked at this pattern that Jesus gives us, I pointed out we've got two sets of requests. The first three concern God's glory. They concern these big, huge, global, cosmic, huge things. And then the other three are related to man's needs, these smaller daily things in our lives. Now, we don't need to dig into all of these to a great level of detail, but I think it is important that we understand what each of these things means and why it matters. And so what I want to do is briefly explain each of these six things, briefly explain them, and then give you an explanation so that you would know when I come to pray and I use this as a pattern, what would I include in my praying? All right, so first, hallowed be your name. We're asking in this request that God would receive the honor that is due him. 
We're asking that God's name would be treated as holy. It already is, but that it would be treated as holy in the lives of the very people who claim his name. That would be us, some of us, Christians. You know, in this case, when I come under this category in my praying, I want to pray for people who have huge influence in this world all over the place with their platforms as Christians that they would honor God and not dishonor God. I want to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted that they would be able to stand firm and honor the name of Jesus. That his name would be treated as holy by the people who claim his name. Second, your kingdom come. We're asking that the kingdom Jesus launched in his first coming would grow and be brought to culmination when Jesus returns the second time to reign. So in this case, you you grab the nearest newspaper and you begin to read about all of the awful things going on in our world and you allow that grief to well up inside of you and then you pray for God's kingdom to come and you pray like crazy for kingdom Christians to serve in Jesus' name and to witness to the reality that salvation is found in Jesus alone. You pray for our community impact partners, our our international impact partners. You grab both of those and you take one of those and you just start beginning to pray for them, that their ministries would be fruitful regularly, intentionally. We pray for God's kingdom to come in this way. Third, your will be done. We're asking that our lives conform to God's will made known in the scriptures. You grabbed your newspaper with one hand, now you grab your Bible with the other hand, and you turn to passages that make God's will clear. One page earlier in Matthew chapter 5, there are the Beatitudes. And you pray these things are God's will. You pray that you and we would exhibit these, that we would be conformed to God's will. Fourth, give us today our daily bread. And saying this sentence, I love this, Jesus validated our day in and day out earthly needs. And so we're praying that God would develop in us a daily dependence on him to provide everything that we need. And then we're actually asking him to provide those things. Martin Luther realized that this word was symbolic, this word bread, standing in for all of the things that we need to preserve our lives. And so we pray for food, and we pray for jobs to be able to get the food, and we pray for health and weather and house concerns and spouses. We pray for children, government, general peace, just about anything small, daily, anything that concerns us in this life like a jewel coupon. We found it, by the way. (laughs) Daily bread. Fifth, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Uh, We're confessing our specific sins to God since ultimately when we've offended someone else, we've offended God. And so we spend time in prayer thinking through the last several days, conversations, thoughts, actions, good things that we didn't do and we confess them to God and we receive forgiveness from him and then we think about people in our lives to whom we need to extend forgiveness or from whom we need to receive forgiveness. Sixth, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. We're asking that God would protect us from the various sins that we're prone to, the things, in other words, that we just confessed a moment ago, and then to rescue us from evil and the evil one who uses his deceitful tricks to accomplish that evil. Pastor John Stott said that Jesus' words remind us of this, that the devil is too strong for us, that we are too weak to stand up to him, but that our heavenly Father will deliver us if we call upon him. 
God, deliver us from the evil one. Six requests, perfectly balanced by focusing on God's glory and then on our needs. And we have in these six requests the things that God cares about. I'll say it this way. If Jesus were here and you got to ask him what things we should be praying for, you know what he'd say? God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, man's bread, man's deliverance, man's forgiveness. These things, these are the things that God cares about and we should be praying about them and we should be praying about them in this order. Did you notice that there's an order to these? Uh, We pray for God's glory first and for man's needs second. Praying with this kind of balance in mind places God in the first place where he belongs and it affects the way we pray about our own needs in the second place. It's very difficult for me to pray selfishly if I've just been praying for God's name and God's kingdom and God's will to be done. It's very difficult for me to pray with doubt if I've just said, God, you are holy. God, you are king. God, you are sovereignly bringing your will into accomplishment. You're doing these things. God cares about these things. We need to pray about these things. We need to pray about them in this order and then catch this. This is incredible. Heaven comes to earth as God responds to our dependent prayers for these things. This is the meaning of that little phrase in the middle, that little pivot point, that hinge on earth as it is in heaven. In our diagram here, you can see that the line sits both between, between both sets of requests, highlighting that the first three in heaven, God-glorifying requests, are answered in the second three Man's needs requests, on earth requests. This means that God responds when we pray. Every day's daily dependence for our needs and every day's daily forgiveness extended and received and every day's obedience in the face of trials and temptations honor God's name, bring God's kingdom, accomplish God's will. So we should pray about these things because God cares about these things. And we should pray them in this order because this is the way that God in his grace has chosen to work in the world. So pray about huge, global, massive things as we've outlined. And pray about small, daily, physical, spiritual, and moral things too as we've outlined. It's balanced praying. Big stuff and small stuff. Reverent and intimate. Patterned and spontaneous. I want to close with a warning. I feel, in fact, that the Lord's Prayer should have a warning label on it. That sincerely praying this kind of stuff can have a tendency to upend your life. Because we're praying against our tendency for our self-centered name, kingdom, and will, and instead for God's. So all the more, pray this prayer. Because we need to. Please stand with me, and we'll close in prayer. And I want to hand things over to our campus pastors. Please bow and we'll pray. And as you do so, I'll remind you that there are prayer team members available. Spend the time putting it into practice right now what we've just been talking about. Praying. Spend time praying. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus, we thank you for this prayer. We thank you that it guides our praying. We thank you that we can approach a heavenly father because of you and what you've done on our behalf. And we thank you that you care about big stuff and small stuff. And we pray about all of these things. Jesus, teach us to pray. Help us to put this into practice Even as you took these things up on your lips, these were concerns that you prayed about. Help us to pray about them too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.